Well, I want to give a big thank you to Matt and to his uh, elder board who have given me this opportunity to speak today. And the, uh, the topic I want to speak on is the nature of life. It's uh, what I've titled this. Um, my name is Aaron Bishop. Uh, I live in Greenville, South Carolina. Not true. I live in Inman, South Carolina. And for the last three years, we've been running a congregation in the Greenville area. Um, Surprisingly enough, it's rarely ever been in Greenville, but in everything around Greenville. Um, but I've always been told that if you're going to start a speech in front of an audience that you don't know, that you should tell a joke. So who wants to hear, hear a joke? All right. Well, there was this Catholic priest, and he was in this large city, and uh, he, had, he had a good size uh, parish. A lot of people come into his congregation. And one day he was outside glad-handing all the people as they're going out, shaking hands. And uh, as they're leaving, he looks across the street and he sees two men standing there, about 50 yards apart from each other. And one of the men was holding a sign that says, I'm a Christian. I need help. Please help. And he has a bucket at his feet. And the other man has a sign that says, I'm a Jew. I need help. Please help. And there's a sign, there's a bucket at his feet. He's just shakes his head in wonder, what's going on over there? Thinks nothing of it. He goes about his week, and he comes back the next week, and after Mass or a sermon, whatever Catholics do, sorry, I'm not. Uh, he's glad-handing the people as they leave, and he notices the men are back with their sandwich boards. One saying, I'm a Christian, and the other one saying, I'm a Jew, and both of them asking for help. And he notices that there's two or three people that are walking by the, the guy with the sandwich board that says, I'm a Christian, and dropping money into this bucket. But he thinks nothing of it. He's like, okay, well, at least they're getting help. I'm, I'm proud of my people for helping the, these people who are in need. So he goes about his week, and he comes back the next week, and uh, he's glad-handing at the end of the service, and as he looks out, and he notices those two men are back. But this time, in front of the, the uh, man who has the sign that says, I'm a Christian, there's a line starting to form of people walking up and dropping money in and talking to him. But in front of the guy with the, with the I'm a Jew sign, there's nobody. And he's like, okay, I'm proud of my people for helping, but they're, they're not helping this Jewish man that we, we should really be helping. But he thinks that, you know, okay, I trust my people. I trust that they will do what God's will is. And so he goes about his week, and he, the next week at the end of the service, he's shaking hands of everybody as they're going out. And he looks across the street and he sees that there's a line that's formed from the front of the church as they're walking out the door to the man who's wearing the sign that says, I'm a Christian. And everybody's just dropping money into his bucket. And he's like, I can't do this anymore. I just can't do this. So he's like, I got to do something about it. He walks down to the man who's wearing the sign that says, I'm a Jew. And he says, excuse me, sir. Um, I'm not sure if you're aware of this, but there's a, there's a synagogue about three miles down the road. And if you go down there, I'm sure you'll find people who'd be willing to help you out. And the man stands there and shakes his head and starts to chuckle. And he turns to the other guy and says, Hey, Shlomo, get this guy trying to tell us how to make money. (laughs) All right. Well, (laughs) um, so the congregation that I've been in charge of, that I've found myself in charge of through an act of God, is uh, we've recently incorporated and we've become grafted together is our name. We're relatively small. God has been blessing us and growing our numbers recently, which has been a huge blessing. 
And uh, it's just been a fantastic experience to be able to to be able to speak God's word to people and to be able to, frankly, for him to give me the space to learn his word and to understand who he is and to really come into a relationship with him, um, which is something I didn't have for a very long time. Um, we have a building that God has given us absolutely free. We can use it whenever we like and no expenses. And it's just been an amazing blessing for God to open up a space for us because we were growing out of living rooms. We were getting too big. Um, but we're, we're a community. And we're, as a community, we're very community and local focused, which means we're not going to have a YouTube channel with teachings. We're not going to have a lot of marketing out there. Um, from the very beginning, we've been praying that God will just bring people who have an overwhelming passion for him. As long as they have that, doesn't matter. Their theology doesn't matter. Their, how much they keep the Torah doesn't matter. As long as they have an overwhelming desire to love and to serve God. And we can work with that and build something else. Um, but I'm not here today representing Grafted Together. Grafted Together is awesome. Any of you are welcome to visit. If you're ever in the Greenville area, look us up and you're welcome to come and to join us and to worship God with us. I am here today representing a small nonprofit that we have founded in the last uh, year. It's existed a little longer than that, but it's only been formalized in the last year, called Deresh Chai. And Deresh Chai is a Hebrew phrase that means seek life. It's an imperative. It's go out and seek life. Um, and Dershchai has existed nearly as long as Grafted Together, but it's only been incorporated about as long as Grafted Together. There's a few months separating the start of Dershchai and the start of Grafted Together in both actuality and legally. When we first started Dershchai, my wife and I, we really didn't have a whole lot of direction. We were trying to figure out what to do professionally in our lives. How were we to go forward in our life. God had closed the doors on my computer business. He'd planted in my heart to do some, something else. And as we prayed about it, the only thing that came up was this idea of just seek life, seek life, seek life. And so we tried to do like health stuff. Um, we tried to do organic food stuff. So we tried to do all sorts of other things, create products to, to produce and to foster life in people. And all of that failed miserably. Not a single bit of it. We, we didn't even sell a single thing, I don't think. And uh, so we're like, okay, well, what do you want us to do? Because in the back of my mind was this phrase running over and over and over again, seek life, seek life, seek life. But what does that even mean? I, I didn't know what it meant at the time. I couldn't figure out what it was that God was asking us to do. Well... <clears throat> Last year in uh, Grafted Together, we were at Sukkot last year, um, and when we went home, we did as we always do. We started the Torah cycle over again, but I didn't want to do just the normal Torah cycle again. We'd done that three years in a row, and we were missing so much every time. There's just so much in each of these Torah portions that you miss. When you're doing six chapters in a single week, you, you miss so much, so... We were thinking, well, maybe we should go to the prophets and explore the prophets a little. Maybe we'll go to the Gospels and explore the Gospels again. But before we did that, I wanted to do one last go through the Torah, but I wanted to slow it down 
really slow, to really sit and marinate in the text. So we did the three-year cycle, which is a bit daunting because there are several weeks where it's just a few verses. Um, the altar of incense, it's like six verses long, and that's an entire week. It's like, uh, what am I going to say on that? Okay, God will give me the, the words when it comes. So we started over in the Torah cycle in uh, Genesis 1. And we just finished the Torah cycle in Deuteronomy. And as we were really slowing down and considering the beginning of Genesis, it struck me just how congruent the two were, the end of Deuteronomy and the beginning of Genesis. There's a lot of overlap. There's a lot of the same things going on, the same things being said. And as we got to the trees in the garden, because Genesis 2 and 3 are the same uh, Parsha in the three-year cycle. And as we got to this, the, the two trees, something really struck me, and I just couldn't get it out of my head. And it's that in the garden, there were two trees. One of the trees was the tree we're all familiar with, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. We're all intimately familiar with that tree. Adam and Eve ate from that tree, and that tree was what brought death to the world. But that tree has in its name this whole idea and question of good versus evil. And our society, our culture, our religion, everywhere we look in our world, we're all being asked to be moral people, to be good people, to seek what is the good in something, to find the good. And we end up defining it for ourselves. And that brings death. So I decided to take a step back and go, okay, good and evil isn't working out. There's this other tree over here, though, this one that's only got a few verses. It mentions that there was the tree of life in the, in the garden. And then it mentions when they were kicked out, it was to prevent their access to the tree of life. And then several other places through scripture, Revelation, Proverbs, a couple other places, we read of wisdom being a tree of life or the people being given access to eat from the tree of life in the, in the kingdom and so on and so forth. And I really started to think about that. If it's the knowledge of good and evil that brings death, what is it that brings life? What is the tree of life? Rather than asking questions of morals, rather than asking the questions of good and evil, right and wrong, what if instead we changed our lens to one of life and death? To try to view life through this lens. And so as we started going through this cycle again, get progress, proceeding past Genesis 2 and 3, I decided to be very intentional about this time through the Torah, to be very intentional about asking questions of life versus death as opposed to questions of good versus evil. And you would not believe what it did for my Bible study. It opened up a whole new world of understanding in my Bible study. I mean, right away, in the curses that Adam and Eve get. What are their curses? For Eve, there's difficulty in bringing forth life. For Adam, there's difficulty in working the fields in order to bring forth life. For the serpent, well, the serpent is cursed to crawl in the dust of the ground and to eat dust all of his days. But if we read very closely in Genesis 2 and 3, it was dust that men were made from, and it's dust that men returned to. The serpent was cursed to live in death and to eat the dead. 
So right there, right away, it just suddenly opened my eyes to this brand new paradigm. And as we go through the scripture, we, we find that there is a whole world of understanding that we're potentially missing because we're asking the wrong questions. So who here is a Marvel fan? Switch topics for a little bit. Like the Marvel movies? All right, if, ask you a question. If you were to choose one Marvel character to save the world, who would you choose? Doctor Strange. Doctor Strange, okay. Anybody else? Spider-Man. Anyone else? Thor? He's pretty strong, yeah. Anyone else? Ah, the Scarlet Witch. Oh, oh, Captain Marvel. Captain Marvel, the new one. Yeah, okay, Captain Marvel. Nice. Any Loki fans here? No? No Loki fans? Why don't you like Loki? He's a, he's a, he's a trickster. He's Thor's younger brother. He's the trickster illusionist. He's, he's a deceiver. He's, he's all, everything that is, seems wrong in people. He's, he's kind of like this ambiguous, neither good nor evil. He does bad things. He does good things. He's somewhere in the middle. So let's, uh, let's change the topic. If you were to choose one man in the family of Abraham, a son of Isaac, who would you choose? Jacob or Esau? Why would you choose Jacob? He is our patriarch. Hindsight 2020, we go, okay, we'll choose Jacob just because he's Jacob, right? He is the guy that God chose. But if you examine it, the Thor and Loki dynamic is very similar to the Esau and Jacob dynamic. I mean, think of it. Esau, he's the mighty hunter. He's, he's strong. He's powerful. He's favored by his father. He is the one to inherit. And who is Jacob? He's a trickster, deceiver. He's an illusionist, pretends to be people he's not in order to gain the throne. Who does God choose? The one whose his strength can be shown through the best. And that is, if we were to look to the Marvel Universe, it's Loki. Why? Why is it that God chose Jacob? A question of the ages. Why did God choose Jacob? He is described as a serpent. When he is born, he is on the wrong side of prophecy. His brother is crushing his head when he's born. Like the serpent's curse that someone would come to crush his head. He's described as slippery, as Matt has pointed out in several teachings. He is favored by his mother. He's not the firstborn. He's not the one that we would choose to inherit. If we were given a choice, we would choose Doctor Strange or Thor or Spider-Man, people who are strong and people who are violent, who solve their problems through violence. So why Jacob? When we look at it through the lens of good and evil, this question has been bothering theologians for ages. 
And there's been a thousand different explanations of perhaps why Jacob over Esau. And I want to add my voice to that as thousand other voices who are proposing something. And I propose that it's because Jacob lived in a nature of life. I mean, look at Jacob, how he's described. He's a shepherd. He's a man of the tents. He's a man of peace. He never once lifts a sword against any man. The only time we see Jacob engage in violence is when he's wrestling with an angel. And he's half of the book of Genesis he's there, and he never once engages in violence. He uses words. He uses thoughts. He, he uses diplomacy to get what he wants. He uses diplomacy to fix things. He seeks the peace in a situation. And if you watch the Marvel movies closely, Loki only ever fights when he absolutely has to. And when he does, he's only got a couple knives. He's not very powerful. He seeks to avoid conflict. He's a man of peace. Is he a good man? Not at all. But is he a man of life? Yeah. Could that be the reason that God chose Jacob over Esau? As the second born, Jacob knew he couldn't get anything without help. He knew he was, he was in a place of humility from the beginning, but Esau, as the stronger, older brother, who's a great hunter, a great warrior, loved by the father, he didn't need help from anyone else. But Jacob needed all the help in the world. If Thor was proven wrong, if Esau was proven wrong, whatever, I'm above it. But when Jacob is proven wrong, he learns from it. He realizes, I am not the man who I should be. And he has the heart of God, the heart of David, that can then change to become someone new. So let's look at another story. We've looked at the curse. We've looked at the choice of Jacob. What about uh, Jacob's sons? Jacob's sons in Genesis 37. One of them is sold away into slavery. And if we look at the whole scenario, we'll see something very interesting. Because there are three options presented in the text. The brothers, they see Joseph on the horizon coming towards them. They're able to identify him because of his special coat. And they plot with each other. Let's kill this dreamer of dreams. The evil option is presented first. But Reuben, he's got a different idea. He says, no, let's do the good thing. Let's take him back to father. Let's restore him to his father. Now, I kind of think that Reuben, Reuben may have been attempting to gain favor in his father's eyes once again because of the coup he had just attempted two chapters earlier by sleeping with his father's concubine. So we have Reuben on one side with the good option, take Joseph home. We've got the other brothers on the other side with the evil option, kill Joseph. And into the midst comes a way between. Now, why is Reuben's idea a bad idea? Why is the good option a bad idea in this situation? Because if Joseph goes home and the story is told that the brothers wanted to kill him, those brothers would at some point in the future be alone with Joseph and they would get their way. They would kill him. It would not have saved Joseph long term. It was a temporary reprieve to return him home. But there's one way to save his life. Only one. 
and that's to get him out of the house. To send him somewhere else where the brothers cannot touch him. And we look at Judah and we, we consider what he did and we feel wrong because it, it wasn't good. But then again, it wasn't evil either. It was somewhere in between. It was, a, it was the path of life. And because that was the option that was chosen and was enacted, the space was created later for life to be given to the entire world. Everyone was saved because they chose to keep Joseph alive. Did they do it for the right motives? Probably not. But they did it anyway. And that's what matters. So that third option... The way of life, that way that's neither good nor evil, but is somewhere in the middle, neither to the left nor to the right. If we were to begin to examine life in that way, and rather than seeing a uh, duality in choice, the good and the evil, and instead we begin to see a polarity in choice, Now, what do I mean by duality versus polarity? With duality, we usually understand it, and so many teachers have taught this. uh, I learned it from Tom Bradford, but, you know, there's many others who talk about the reality of duality. There's the right, there's the left. Neither shall the twain mix. Hot, cold, up, down, left, right. But in reality, we find that they mix all the time because up and down, they meet in us. Left and right, they meet in us. Hot and cold, that's where people are able to live. Male and female, put them together, what do you get? You get life. If we instead examine it through polarity rather than duality, we'll find that there is a third option. And when those two options are combined in some way, it introduces movement, it introduces flow, it introduces life into a situation. It can create the circumstances for something greater to come in the end. And there's endless examples of this all throughout scripture. We could turn to any story and find an example of something like this going on. Yeshua, what was the good thing at his crucifixion? To take him down from the cross, right? To save himself from death. But what was the long-term life goal? To allow death to consume him for the sake of everyone else. Not the good, not really even the evil. Something in between. So one more quick example. When I was going through this and first considering it, I was like, well, okay, but what about Solomon? Solomon goes to God. God got gives him anything he wants. He can have whatever he wants. And he chooses what? The ability to discern good from evil. Wisdom. And what happens with Solomon? Is he a good king? No. Because over his life, and this was mentioned yesterday by David Wilbur, over his life he begins to define good as his love for foreign women. That becomes the good thing. He begins to find good as having power over others. That becomes the good thing. He begins to define wealth as something good to be had. 
And in so doing, he breaks all five, only five commands in the Torah for a king, and he breaks all five of them. Not just does he break those five commands, he then enslaves his own people, takes money from their pockets, and ends up setting up temples to foreign gods in the city of Jerusalem and allowing child sacrifices. Because he began to define what is good and what is evil. Rather than using the ability to discern good and evil to then find the way between, that is, the way of life. Why is this man in the world? Why is this man to ever exist? So, in the Torah, if we really examine it, if we open its pages and we really dig deep, we will discover that in every command in the Torah, it describes a way of life. What do you do with the mother bird? You let her go, and you take the children so that life might continue. What do you do? Uh, Don't murder, don't kill, don't steal, don't destroy, don't lie, don't slander. All of those are ways of preserving life or livelihood or reputation because a person's livelihood depends on their reputation. But there are some that that are really hard to, to see through this lens. Another example that was brought up earlier by David Wilbur the commands to kill all of the Canaanites. How is that something of life? Or what about stoning your children? How is that a way of life? Well, if you know anything about sickness, when there's a cancer that's present in a body that will lead to its death, what do you do with that cancer? You cut it out and you remove it so that it will not bring death to the host. And who is our host? Our host is the earth right now. And the Canaanites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, the Jebusites, they were a cancer in the land of Israel. The only way to deal with it is to cut it out for the sake of all humanity. The the child who is stoned, this isn't a mob dragging a kid out in the streets and, oh, kill the kid. He's, he disobeyed his parents once. That's not what's being talked about at all. This is a younger man, teenager, who has demonstrated over and over and over that he will not obey his parents, that he will not do what's right for his community, that he will not support life within his household. He's going to do it his way. And so as a cancer in a household, what do you do with it? You don't necessarily do the good thing. Sometimes difficult and hard things have to be done in order to preserve life. It's so hard to do. None of us would want to take our children out and stone them. But in order to preserve the life, not just of my, fellow, my other siblings or my other uh, children, but for the life of the entire community, sometimes that hard choice has to be made. And so as we read through the Torah, we'll find this idea represented all throughout. Oh, another, another option. What are the commands that separate us from traditional Christians? There's really only three the Sabbath, the feast days, and the dietary laws. And why 
do Christians reject these three commands? Because they're not moral commands. They're not moral. There's no good or evil found within them. But what is found within them? Life. Dietary laws. What, is, what has God created to support life within you? What has, or the Sabbath. Man does not live by bread alone. Man does not live by working seven days a week and expending himself and dying an early grave because he can't stop working and he has to support himself. The feast days, each and every one of them is a festival of the harvest. The bringing forth of the life from the field, the bounty and sustenance that God has provided. If instead we can change our, idea, our paradigm to life versus death, then these things become no-brainers. Let's do them because they represent life. They celebrate life. They practice life and they create a place for life to continue. In the book of Deuteronomy, at the very end of the book, Moses is closing out his final speech just before they get to the, uh, the final writing of the book and the, the song of Moses that takes an entire chapter. And Moses is closing out the entire speech that he's given since chapter 5 of Deuteronomy. And in Deuteronomy 30, he says a couple things that are very interesting. In Deuteronomy 13, 15 through 16, he says, See, I have set before you today life and good and death and evil. In that I command you today to love Hashem your God, to walk in his ways and to guard his commands and his laws and his judgments. And you shall live and increase. And Hashem your God shall bless you in the land in which you go to possess. So it's really easy to look at that verse and go, oh, God is taking us to the land, the blessing. Maybe we should choose the blessing, the land. We should choose good from God. But then just a few verses later, I have called the heavens and the earth as witnesses today against you. I have set before you life and death and the blessing and the curse. Choose life so that you may live, both you and your seed. He doesn't say choose good. He doesn't say choose the blessing. He explicitly says choose life. And then they go to conquest and conquer the land of Canaan. And why were they able to conquer the land of Canaan? I think we catch a glimpse of it all the way back in Deuteronomy 1, in verse 39. In Deuteronomy 1, 39, he's, Moses is kind of telling the history of the people of Israel. This is what happened in the past, and this is why we're where we're at today. And he says, And your little ones and your children, who you say are for prey, who today have no knowledge of good and evil, they are going in there. And to them I give it, and they are to possess it. They have no knowledge of good and evil. What do they have? They have knowledge of God. They have knowledge of the God of life. And because they don't know good and evil, they are pictured kind of like Adam in the garden before the fall. They know life. They know only life because all they've ever experienced was this wilderness with God in the tabernacle and his ways. Forty years of learning his ways. And that enables them to go into the land. Because when the spies go in, 
They're to go in. They're to look to tell whether the land is good or evil. And they come back and they say, it's got giants. It's too big. Too, they're too strong. The cities are too, too big walls. We can't do it. And they give an evil report. Now, some might say that uh, we no longer have access to the tree of life. Right? Genesis 3. An angel was set in the east of Eden to prevent access to the tree of life. Uh, 3.22b. And now, lest he put out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. What was it that was granted to those who ate of the tree of life? Eternal life. So question, do we have access to eternal life today? Through Yeshua. The tree of life today is back in man's grasp. We can take a hold of it. We can eat of its fruit. We were commanded, take and eat. This is my body. And John 1, 4, in him was the life, and the life was the light of men. Who was that life? Yeshua. How about John 3.16? We're all familiar with it. The entire world is familiar with it. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever shall believe in him shall not perish but shall have everlasting life. Or how about John 10.10? The thief does not come except to steal, to kill, and to destroy. But I have come that they might possess life and that they might possess it beyond measure John 14 6 notice they're all John John has a very specific theme going throughout his entire book Yeshua said to him I am the way the truth and the life no one comes to the father except through me I propose that that tree of life that was once blocked off from man where we had no access before, we have now been given access back to it through the person of Yeshua. And as a result, as our reward for eating of him, we have eternal life. And as our reward, when we do face death in this fallen and mortal body, we will get entry into a kingdom that is defined wholly and solely by life. A new creation in the very end in which there is no more death. Death has been conquered forever and life is all that exists. There's no more darkness. Light is all that exists. And the tree of life will be in its midst and it will bear fruit. Twelve times a year, once for every month. And God's people will have access to eat of the tree of life. So what about good and evil? Is good and evil something that we don't pay any attention to anymore? That we don't even try or attempt to understand? And I would propose that no. But we need to redefine good. In Genesis 1, what is defined as good? Everything, creation. And when is it defined as good? Only when it's in place to support life. Only when that space between 
whether it's the waters above and the waters below for that space between for life to exist, that polarity. The land and the sea split apart so that light, life can exist. Light and dark split apart so that life can exist in the midst of it. And they were defined as good once they could support life. If we can redefine good rather than being something moral, but rather as being something that brings life. I think perhaps we might learn to understand the heart of God just a little bit closer, a little bit better. And so exists Deresh Chai. The pursuit of life, seeking life in all of its forms. And as a, as, a, uh, as a ministry, we do this in several ways. That uh, three-year Torah cycle that I've been doing with our local congregation, I'm changing those teachings and re-releasing them in a podcast. Episode 34 just came out where we just explored the Joseph being sold into slavery. It came out yesterday. The Deresh Chai Experiment is that podcast if you want to listen through this three-year cycle as I'm teaching it through a lens of life. So it's to examine scripture through this lens of life versus death. The second way we're doing that is we're trying to attempt to bring scripture to life. How many of you have opened the Torah and gone through it again and the the characters in there just become these wooden, two-dimensional, unrelatable people that you're, just, you're having a really hard time understanding them as people because you've seen them as chosen by God so many times. Well, we're doing another podcast show. It's called Testimonies, where we attempt to bring to life the characters of the Bible by having them give their testimonies at the end of their life. We went through a thought experiment with various characters of the Bible where we sit down and ask them, so tell us about your life moments before their death. And then we record their testimony, their story, their struggles, their emotions that they felt, the hardship that they went through, their victories, the, the ways that God provided for them, the ways that he revealed himself to them, and the, the depression at times, the hardship at times, the... It's been absolutely amazing to go through these thought experiments and to try to fill in, in some way, the gaps in the, in the text. But we make it very clear, this is fiction. This isn't, this isn't scripture. This is just a fictional thing that we're doing to try to help to bring the Bible to life for those who are having trouble connecting to these great people. And then we encourage people, do it yourself. Don't take our word for it. Sit down with the Bible Read what's there, and then just think about who were these people? What existed in these gaps? What caused them to make this choice? So we're examining the scriptures from the point of life versus death. We're attempting to bring life to the scriptures in a way that has been attempted before. Uh, that's, that, you know, I'm not going to claim to be the first one to ever do this, but a way that's definitely blessed me as I've been working on it. Another thing we're doing is we're attempting to look out into the world and look at life itself. And one thing we notice when we look at things that are alive, there are patterns in them. There's symmetry in them. I mean, I'm symmetrical, right? 
sorry, I'm symmetrical. An arm on either side, a leg on either side. You could split me down the middle and you'd have two halves of me. Split me down the middle, stick me up against a mirror. It'd be just like you're looking at me. Right? Trees, same way. Animals, same way. In fact, every single animal that you find, there's a, there's a really peculiar ratio called the phi ratio that exists in all of them, including us. There are patterns in life. It's only when you get to things like rocks and dirt and mountains, things that don't necessarily have their own inherent life, that we begin to see chaos and disorder. Things don't make sense. And so we're attempting to take patterns and apply them to the scriptures. And we're working on a patterns Bible, which will be available for the first draft is done, printed, and you can look at it at the marketplace later today. We're working on the second draft, working on a website to get it out there. It's absolutely fantastic, the, the depth that these patterns go. Because you can go through scripture on one level in one pattern, and it's revealing one thing. But then you break it down into a pattern that's underneath it. And a completely different story is being told on that second level. And then on the third level, it's a completely different story. It's all the same text, all the same chapters, all the same stories. But it can really aid with Bible study. It also helps memorization. Because if you can realize that a passage is a pattern, and you know the pattern, then you can begin to plug in the words into that pattern, and it sticks way better. And then another way that we're working is to bring life to those who don't have it. One of the things that we've been doing is an event called Swap, or Share with a Purpose. We've partnered with three churches and two daycare centers to gather donations of clothing, people who don't have way too much in their closets. We take those clothes, we sort them, we have a school gymnasium that we set up in, and we give them away for free to the community. Anyone who needs clothes, no, no checks, no nothing. If you want free clothes, come get some free clothes. And it's been a huge blessing to a whole lot of people to do this. And as an organization, we want to begin to train other communities how to do this how to begin to hold their own swap events. We don't want to run it for you. We don't want all of the blessing from your community. We want people in your community to do it for themselves and to do it for the community so that the community is blessing the local community. And it's not somebody coming in from the outside and let me swoop in and bless you and then swoop right back out. No connection whatsoever. Instead, someone who lives there, someone who exists in the community, working to better the local community. And then finally, we're attempting to live out life as God commanded it. Life in community. Life with fellow believers. And that's where Grafted Together comes together. Because Aaron Bishop is not grafted together. If God calls me somewhere else, we're trying to plant a community that can't exist without me. That can't exist without I've been there since the beginning. I've been working to build it, but I want it to exist on its own two feet so we, we could step back and go do something else and it will remain and won't fall apart, which in Greenville is very easy, apparently. And so that's what we're doing. That's the beginnings of Deresh Chai. We've only been open officially for less than a year and already we're doing all of this stuff. Swap we've been doing for seven years and just kind of folded it into the Deresh uh, label. Same with uh, Grafted Together. 
Some of the other stuff is brand new that we've just started in the last year. And those who are participating in it, those who are hearing it, that it has been a blessing, just a huge blessing to each and every person who's involved. But our God, he is a God who is defined by life. He's a God who created life. His whole purpose is to bring us into a kingdom of life. We don't get there by being good. We get there by having life in the way that he has created it and living life as he has designed it. And so that's our job as people. Our job as members of the kingdom is to live in the nature of life. But before we can live in the nature of life, we have to know what it is. And so we must seek life. We must derish high.